Well, brethren, let me invite your attention to Revelation and chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7, which has occupied our attention uh, for the last few days. As I come into the very last session that I have the privilege to speak in, let me begin by thanking the leadership of this church for its invitation, um, not only for me to attend this missions conference, but also to be a speaker on this occasion. I do not take that for granted and would like to uh, acknowledge my sense of gratitude at this time. Those of you who have been here uh, since Thursday or have piped in perhaps through the internet will remember and recognize the fact that we have been looking at the theme of um, before the throne, every nation, tribe, people, and language. In other words, bringing out something of uh, the reality of the work of missions and especially global missions. Uh, those words are found in Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9, and I'll read it to you at this point. Revelation 7 and verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. My job over the last couple of days, including today, has been primarily to encourage all of us, whether we are senders or we are goers, whether we are individuals who participate in missions primarily through prayer or primarily through giving or primarily by being in the actual mission field. It's been to encourage you by showing from this passage of Scripture, from verse 9 all the way to the end of this chapter, what I am calling the end game, the, the end of human history. It's not the annihilation of humanity, but it is that final division of uh, mankind into those that are sent to perdition and those that are welcomed in heaven. And especially to, to show that this second category is primarily the fruit of missions. The, the very activity we are currently concentrating on is what that second category is all about. And that ought to be a great encouragement to all of us to participate in this all-important work. As I've said, we are looking at this from Revelation and chapter 7, beginning with verse 9. And what we have done thus far is appreciated the context in which Revelation 7 is found. It is after 
the chapters that deal with a view of heaven as God is being worshipped, which is Revelation 4, and then also a view of heaven when the Lord Jesus Christ now receives from the Father the scroll with its seven seals. In chapter 6, we see how the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the Lamb, looking as though he was slain, is, taking, is opening up the seals one by one. In fact, it is as he opens the seventh seal, rather the sixth seal, the seven but one, that we find ourselves in chapter 7. As he's opening up that seal, first of all, we are shown something of the 12 tribes of Israel and 12,000 individuals from there, which no doubt is a figurative number that is showing us those who are sealed, as it were, from these tribes of Israel. But then, after that, John opens our eyes as he himself is shown this innumerable crowd of people from every nation and tribe and language. We've been making our way through those verses from verse 9 downwards. And on the first evening, we saw the grateful worship of those who are thus saved by the Lord, the redeemed and their grateful worship. We went on to see on the second evening the single, rather the glorious worship of the angels that is, in this particular case, a response to something of the work of redemption. As the people of God have been saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, the angels respond with a loud Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. We went on then yesterday to look at the identity of those who are in heaven. And we noticed that it was a result of one of the elders asking John the question, these who are in white robes, who are they and where are they from? Out of genuine humility, John says, sir, you know, you, you, you obviously are in a better position to tell me who they are. And we noticed how these people were identified by the single qualification that covered all of them. And it was the statement that these have come out of the great tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now that's amazing that this entire diverse crowd that fills up this palace 
in heaven that they should be defined by only one phrase. Think about it. Right across history, this entire diverse crowd that they are defined by the gospel. By the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified and especially that they've responded to that. There's so much that tends to describe us as human beings here on earth. But when we get there, all those definitions blur into utter insignificance. It's only this message of the gospel. Now that surely should convince you that what we are involved in when we think and labor in missions is of eternal consequence. Well, today we come to our final installment and we are seeing the blissful benefits enjoyed by those who are in heaven. And we're seeing this from the ongoing words of the elder, but this time in verse 15 down to verse 17. Let me read those words and then we will look at them together. Verse 15 down to verse 17 of Revelation and chapter 7. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The words that we have just read are meant to be an encouragement, an encouragement to us as we continue to labor for the gospel, especially to labor for it in the context of the global situation. Because whereas perhaps here where you are in the U.S., so much of your liberties have grown out of the Christian faith and the Christian gospel as it has now spilled over into human life and living. When we think in terms of missions into every nation, tribe and people and language, often those liberties are not there. Rather, when a person professes faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, it often means suffering, paying a very dear price. First of all, in the context of the family, that such individuals are disowned completely because they have, as it were, abandoned the family religion. In fact, I remember not too long ago, uh, a young lady shoring up 
at our church having come to faith in Christ through listening to messages on the internet. She came from an Islamic background. And later on, about a month later, she asked to see me. And as we met in my office, she said to me that her greatest trial was hearing her own father saying to her that if we were back in my nation, where I come from, I would have killed you today. And that's hard for anybody to process, especially hearing that from your own dad. Well, it's also persecution from the context of the community. Individuals who profess faith end up losing employment, being ostracized by people within the context of their social circles, and that's extremely hard to handle. They even lose their jobs. But we're still, even in the political sphere, they end up being persecuted because they are betraying or abandoning the religion of the nation. A result of that, some of them don't just lose employment, but some of them lose their lives, their very lives. They are turned into Christian martyrs. And it's hard for individuals who are out there sharing what is supposed to be the good news, the best news on the planet, and then seeing the price that is being paid by those who are receiving this news. Well, brethren, a passage such as this helps to encourage us because we begin to see that though the war is thick and bloody, the end is going to be glorious. Hence, looking at the blissful benefits of those who are in heaven. Let's quickly look at this and trust that the Lord will encourage our hearts as we give ourselves to the work of missions. First of all, we see the reciprocal relationship of service between those who are the saved and he who is their savior. Those who are the servants with he who is their Lord. Look at this in verse 15. Revelation chapter 7 and verse 15. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. I hope those of you who've been here since Thursday will have noticed by now the emphasis that is in the entire passage. And it is this aspect, not simply of a people from every nation and tribe and so forth, but it is these people coming to the throne of the entire universe. Arriving at the seat of power that is 
at the highest level. Look at the way it is repeated over and over again in this passage that we have been working through. First of all, verse 9, which we have already read. Somewhere in the middle, we are told that these people are from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne, we are told. We see the same in verse 10 where we are told that they are crying out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. We hear this twice in verse 11. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne. And even in our text, we have it repeated. Look at verse 15. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. There's no doubt that this was at the very center of the thinking of John, of the revelation that has come to him. That what is happening now is that these individuals have arrived at the most important place in the entire universe. The seat of power, where it matters the most, is where they have arrived. I hope all of us, as we have been working through this, are realizing that that's the glorious message. That we have now gone beyond human rulers, human potentates. It doesn't matter how powerful they might be. We've now arrived at that place that matters the most. Where the creator the governor of all history, the coming judge of the living and the dead, where he is seated. That throne is where we have now arrived. And what are we being told here? It is the fact that these individuals are now there and they are now serving this God day and night in his temple. The word serving there is one that has to do with worship as well. It's not simply serving as we would be serving one another. In fact, it is used again in Revelation and chapter 22, Revelation chapter 22, the very last chapter of the entire Bible, and definitely the last chapter of this book. And this is the way in which John puts it. Revelation 22 and verse 3. No longer will there be anything accursed, 
but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. That word worship there is actually exactly the same word that we have translated as serving him in Revelation and chapter 7. It is a word that is used a number of times in the New Testament, but inevitably with some kind of deity as being the one that the people or the individual is serving. And it makes sense because, as you will notice in our text, they are serving him or worshipping him day and night in his temple. Well, that's what you do within the temple because the temple is a place of worship. But what you have here is a complete change because when they were on earth, they were serving and in that sense worshiping, but they were doing so among so many distractions as life is here on earth, even for you. Often in between serving in the sense of worship, there is so much that occupies you and therefore you have all these errands to be involved in. Well, for these people, it also included persecution. It included suffering. It included distress. It included trials. All the difficulties that were they in life. Remember, earlier on, this same elder had said, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. In other words, where they were coming from, they were worshiping, peeping over their shoulders. Are we safe? Are we secure? They were worshiping, bearing in mind that a brother or sister had just been slain because of worshiping God. But now, they are free at last to worship him day and night in his temple. Without distraction whatsoever. Without fear whatsoever. Now, they are able to worship this God with unseeing hearts. They've loved him on earth. They love him even all the more, having arrived in his eternal presence. But that's one side. They are thoroughly enjoying worshiping him in this way. There is the other side, and it is what God himself is doing for them. Notice this at the end of verse 15. And he who sits on the throne... We are told there, does what? Shelters them with his presence. He is protecting them. Once upon a time on earth, they were vulnerable. They were hunted like wild animals. They paid a dear price for their standing for the God whom they loved. But now, they are secure. God's own presence is like a banner over them. What a difference. What 
a change has taken place to these individuals. Well, let's hurry on to look at the benefit that comes from being sheltered under his presence. We see that in verse 16 and verse 17. In verse 16, it is described for us in negative terms. We are told there in verse 16, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. The point that is being made there is the fact that that which they suffered when they were here on earth is no longer taking place. It's over. Completely over. And so he is using picture language there. The hunger is gone. The thirst is gone. The sun can no longer strike them. The scorching heat is gone. They are now in a state in which their suffering is completely over. I'm sure that captures something of the same suffering through persecution that was there before. They could not overlook it. It created a season, a period of intense suffering. And you will hear about this from reports coming through from international missions that for many of our brothers and sisters to become a Christian is to become a marked man or woman. They suffer for it. They cannot describe their lives without inevitably bringing in this aspect of suffering. And so, when these individuals are finally washed ashore into glory, they cannot believe the freedom they now have. They can hardly believe it. That now they can worship God freely, utterly freely, without peeping over their shoulders. They can rejoice in God without worrying that in the next moment that joy will be taken away through the barrel of a gun. Ah, it's over. They have now entered into their master's presence. You can begin to appreciate why this aspect of the throne of God the throne of God, the throne of God matters so much. Even in verse 17, we'll soon see it. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne. You see, on earth, often, you, at least church history has recorded, that there would be a potentate who'd come into power who is on the side of Protestants. And so the Protestants would have a glorious day 
and really rejoice. Finally, we are free. We can worship God according to the dictates of our hearts. Before long comes Bloody Mary. Completely changed. The evangelicals, the protestants are taken to the stake. Burnt alive. The situation has changed because these Lords and kings keep changing one after the other. It's unpredictable. But not when you finally arrive by the throne of God. Who can ever arise to change that? Who? You have finally arrived home safe and secure forever. That's what these brethren are now rejoicing in. They shall hunger no more. They shall thirst no more. The sun shall never strike them again. They will never experience this scorching heat. They are free and free at last to worship God as their own hearts have always desired. But let's go on. Because the description is not just negative. It's also positive. We are told then verse 17. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's speaking more now of that blissful benefit, positively speaking. You see, to begin with, if this book fell into the hands of the Roman governors and, and the Roman soldiers and, and the Roman persecutors, they would read a statement like this and conclude it is utter nonsense because a lamb does not shepherd. A lamb is shepherded. A lamb is a baby sheep. And here are these confused Christians. Who are they imagining that a lamb being in some midst of a throne will be their shepherd? Well, it's their ignorance. Because as I've been saying over the last couple of days, this is born out of a knowledge of the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, a lamb was crucified, rather sacrificed as an atonement to pay the price for sinners. And therefore, it points not only to that atonement in the Old Testament as a picture, but ultimately to the one who atoned for the sin of the world. To borrow the words of John the Baptist when he first saw Jesus Christ. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins, not just of the Israelites, but the sins of the world. Of the peoples from every nation and tribe and language. This Jesus, the Son of God, became man, took on himself Human flesh that he might live the life 
that we could not live in righteousness and die the death that if we died, we would pay for in hell forever. Oh, this Jesus was crucified like a lamb, paid the price for our sin, and having satisfied the justice of Almighty God, the God who sits on that throne, he was raised from the dead, ascended to his right hand side, and was made King of kings and Lord of lords. And having sent his Holy Spirit into the world, he has continued to gather in his people. He himself said it, that I am the good shepherd. I have sheep that are not counted among the current sheep right now. I must gather them in also. And what has been happening across history is the ingathering of the sheep of God. So that he might be the one shepherd and the sheep from every language and tribe and peoples and nation might be gathered together before him. And this is what is finally realized when we read the words, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. The purpose of God has finally been realized. And as a result of that, he will guide them to springs of living water. There's no doubt that that is primarily an allusion to Psalm 23, the most famous psalm in the whole Bible. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters, beside springs of living waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Here on earth, under all kinds of mortal danger, they were able to say, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. But now they can say, much more than David would have said when he penned down this book. Much more than we can say as we are still here on earth. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. All those that hated me to the point of putting their spears or bullets through my being can now only watch as I celebrate the goodness of God, as God himself feasts me with pure delight. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. So these, coming out of the great tribulation, can now say for sure, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord 
forever and ever and ever. As God's goodness pours upon our souls in torrents that would have never imagined in the days of tribulation, in the days of our suffering. Well, brethren, this is what the global work of missions produces. A people with eternal, blissful benefits. Yes, today it might not look that way. As you are laboring in the mission field, only to hear that this convert has been thrown out of their home, the other convert has been kicked out of their employment, the other convert has had the property confiscated, the other convert has been killed. Or perhaps yourselves who are here as senders and givers, as you receive these reports about Christian converts and the sufferings that they are going through, perhaps you might begin to wonder, were we not better off leaving them alone? At least they were not going to suffer the way they are suffering now. Brethren, don't think like that. Smoke those thoughts of doubt out of your minds. These individuals have first of all been saved from lives of fear in ongoing superstition and ongoing atheism. Religious superstition. You, you, they've been saved from that. Yes, they may have gone into a phase of suffering, persecution. But lift your gaze from the present and see this beautiful sight that the elder has shown John, who himself is in a period of intense suffering and persecution by the Roman potentate. And is being shown the end game. The throng of the redeemed. Rejoicing in his presence. With those tears they once upon shed on earth. Wiped away utterly. When they are in indescribable joy. You know. When they come to you, what they'll say to you, it was all worth it. Thank you. Thank you for bringing this good news to us. Look at this. That is now our blissful benefit for all eternity. May that encourage us all to invest all our beings in world missions, knowing that a day is coming when before the throne will have every tribe, every nation, every people, and every language 
rejoicing forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Eternal and gracious God, thank you for this sight that you gave to a bewildered John, perhaps a discouraged John. Lord, we thank you too that this sight is ours today. That in the midst of nerve-wracking, finger-twisting reports, Lord, that we can be shown the end game that they might be still put once again into those knees, into those arms that might be discouraged. Lord, help us to have renewed energy to give, to go, to sacrifice, knowing that it will all be worth it. For Jesus' sake, amen.